Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this episode, Commodious Temples, Brenton Grimes discusses the emergence of Catholic church building in 19th century Dublin, following over 100 years of discrimination against Catholics. The 13th annual Sir John T. Gilbert commemorative lecture was recorded in front of a live audience at Dublin City Library and Archive, Pier Street, on the 21st of January 2010. Uh, thank you, Lord Mayor, for that generous introduction. And I feel honoured to have been asked to give this 13th annual lecture in honour of Sir John Gilbert. And I'm also pleased, Lord Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, to share with you some of the fruits from my study of 19th century Catholic church buildings in Dublin. People like me spend a lot of time in libraries and archives and in studies typing away, and it's lovely to emerge and share our information with people. I'm delighted to do that. Now I'm going to show you some of the Catholic churches, or as they were called at the time, ornamental edifices, which were added to the metropolis by the Catholics of Dublin during John Gilbert's lifetime. And he was born in 1829, a significant date for Catholics, and he died in 1898. Now in the early 19th century, Catholic churches of architectural pretension mostly in the classical style, began to be built in Dublin. These temples, as they were often called, were paid for and built against the background of legislation which for over 100 years had discriminated against Catholics. One result of this discrimination was to make it difficult for Catholics to build churches of architectural distinction on prominent sites. When the restrictions were lifted, they managed to produce some magnificent classical temples, as I hope you will agree when you see the photographs I have for you. However, not all these churches were classical, and by the middle of the century, classicism was in the way, and the Gothic style began to be increasingly favoured by Catholic church builders, who came under the spell of Pugin. Now, before looking at the churches, I want, as a way of providing some background, to bring you back to the year 1731. In that year, a Lord's Committee made a report for the government concerning the state of Catholic religion in Ireland, or popery, as it was called in the report. And we learned from this report that there were 16 mass houses in Dublin, four of which had been built since the reign of George I, that is in 1727. And the report counts also counts three private chapels, two nunneries, and what are called 45 popish schools. Now, a reading of this report gives the impression, to me at least, that Catholic church building in big urban centres was progressing without too much interference. The Lord's Committee were not too pleased with this increase in building, and they said in the report, they stated that the increase, and I quote now, of public mass houses and convents is to the manifest danger of the Protestant religion, of His Majesty's government, and of the peace and welfare of this kingdom. So it's hardly surprising that the committee recommended that, I quote again, it is absolutely necessary that the magistrates of this kingdom, particularly those in the city of Dublin, do immediately enter upon a more steady and vigorous execution of the laws against popery especially those against all regular and persons exercising ecclesiastical jurisdiction 
contrary to the laws of this kingdom. Now, whether prompted by this recommendation or not, we find Dublin Corporation setting up a committee to consider what further laws were needed to help in the proper running of the city. Very sensible thing to do. And in the committee's report, dated 4th of December, they suggested 18 extra laws, and one of which stated that each alderman shall be obliged to make returns every term to the grand jury at every general session of the peace of all popish schoolmasters and nunneries or friars that they know, are informed of, or have reason to suspect are within their several wards, in order to have the same prosecuted and suppressed. Now, in spite of what seems a hostile attitude from Dublin Corporation to the Catholic clergy, particularly those belonging to the religious orders, there is, or there was in this period, a tolerant attitude by the press towards them, which began to discard descriptions like Popish priests in favour of descriptions like Roman Catholic clergymen and parish priests. I think in the use of language you can discern this change of attitude. And the newspapers began to publish death notices of Catholic clergymen. For example, I have one from the Faulkner's Dublin Journal of 13th of January 1741 on the death of the parish priest of St. Nicholas Without, that's St. Nicholas of Mara, the Reverend Thomas Austin, with the words that his death is very much lamented by people of all persuasions. Now, another report, this time made in 1749, for the Protestant Archbishop of Dublin has notes on 19 Catholic chapters in the city. This report noted that the Catholics enjoy the exercise of the religion, if not in such splendour as they desire, yet without the least molestation from the government. Now, moving on to 1825, there were, according to the contemporary writer, 26 Catholic chapters in the city, and then another report in 1849 says there was a total of 28 places for Catholic worship. Now, what were these chapels like? Because none of them exist anymore in Dublin. Now, I think it's safe to say that most of the 18th century Catholic chapels were fitted out at least adequately and sometimes expensively, but none of them made any attempt at anything more than a modest display, if any display at all, on the outside. Now, even in the early years of the 19th century, John Milner, he wrote on Catholic affairs, observed that, I quote him, it is the spirit of our religion to bestow the greatest pains and expense upon the interior decoration of our churches and chapels. And another contemporary, this time a Protestant clergyman, George Newenham Wright, described the entrance to the Liffey Street Chapel as by a wretched gateway beneath a tottering fabric. But, he goes on to say, the interior by no means corresponds. It is extremely neat and has a venerable sombre character. There are no examples of these chapels left in Dublin, as I said, but St. Patrick's Church in Waterford conveys some idea, I think, of what these chapels were like. Here we have very modest entrance. You just go down a lane into this door. It's like a speakeasy almost. And you arrive into a nice interior, well fitted out, sometimes expensively, as I said. The lovely monuments there. 
And very commonly, they had galleries, three galleries in this case, to get as many people in to a small place as possible. The building of the Carmelite Church of St. Teresa in Clarendon Street marked the beginning of a new era for Catholic church builders in Dublin. The foundation stone was laid by John Sweetman, one of Dublin's leading Catholic laymen, in 1793, and the church was opened to the public in 1810. Now, according to the Reverend Dr. William Marr, of whom we shall meet again, St. Teresa's stood out like a jewel against the other Dublin churches, which he said are crouching timidly in the darkest and most loathsome alleys and lanes of the city. Now, within about 25 years, great progress had been made and continued to be made in the provision of fine new churches, and this was a source of great pride for Catholics. In a sermon delivered by the very Reverend Dr. Miley in St. Audwin's Church in August 1841, he gives the following description, and this sermon was published so that he could get funds for the new church. He said, if a stranger were to ask me where the trophies of the glorious sacrifices of the Irish people for their religion are to be found, I would conduct him around the city and show him the backyard chapels, the catacombs of Dublin. And then I would bring him to St. Andrew's, to St. Michael and John's, to the church of St. Francis of Assisio, to both the Carmelite churches, to St. Nicholas's, to that beautiful Ionic temple of St. Paul's, to St. Michael's, to the Dominican church, to St. Francis of Xavier, to the Metropolitan, surpassing all the churches, not only in this island, but of the empire in Doric majesty. The Metropolitan is, is the pro-cathedral, and here she stands in Doric majesty. Before these churches were built, the morals of Dubliners were, according to Dr. William Marr, the parish priest of that mine, a match for what he would have us believe were the grim conditions of the chapels in 18th century Dublin. He was a good orator and had a great facility with words. He wrote, The drunkard raved without obstruction, and the blasphemer shouted his impiety, and the gambler squandered in nights of dissipation what his days of toil had accumulated. By the middle of the 19th century, several fine Catholic churches had been built in the city, and Dr. Marr, observing them, asserted that the depravity of 50 years earlier was little evident amongst the population of Dublin. What a wonderful thing architecture can do. <laughs> the creation of fine public buildings had become visible evidence of the Catholics' newly won civil rights and an expression of their determination to command respect. They're my words, not Dr. Marlon. Now, I just, I just noticed I have a footnote here that the parish committee of Francis Street Chapel budgeted an annual sum in 1794 to provide a salary for a policeman to keep the approaches to the chapel clear of the obstruction of beggars. And I have a note too that the Dublin Evening Post of 28th of November 1786 advised Catholics to use their best efforts to clear the approaches to the chapels of 
beggars. So, interesting enough. Now, Catholics in other towns and cities across the water in our neighbouring island had similar ambitions. The Catholics of London saw their new church of St. Mary's Moorfield as more appropriate than their old chapel for the display of the imposing service of their religion and better adapted for the respectability and numbers of its adherents in the capital. Now this idea of matching high morals with fine buildings was an aspiration of the clergy and laity in the large towns and cities of Ireland. At a meeting in Cork to further the building of St. Mary's Pope's Quay, the prior, Dr. Russell, said that the Catholics need no longer feel inferior when they had accustomed themselves to their new church. He also thought that a beautiful church would exercise great moral influence on the character and feeling of the Catholic population. There's his church, St. Mary's in Pope's Key, and you would really feel like dressing up well and behaving yourself entering a building like that. Now, one more example. This one is from Dr. William Higgins in his printed appeal for funds to build his new cathedral in Longford. Here's Longford. He also drew a connection between public morals and architecture. He wrote this. The bishop conceived he would advance the glory of God and greatly promote the cause of truth and morality by erecting a spacious cathedral in the centre of his diocese. Uh, we're talking about St. Mel's, which sadly was gutted by fire on Christmas morning. There it is there. I took that photograph in August. Now, the opening of a new Catholic church was to become an important social event, attended by many from the wealthy and influential sections of society. This indicates, I think, a general acceptance of the Catholic's role in contributing to public architecture. For example, the consecration of the new church of St. Nicholas of Mara in 1832 was attended by, I quote, from, where do I quote from, Freeman's Journal, a very fashionable congregation which included several Protestant families. And the music was selected from masses by Haydn and Mozart, and the orchestra was supplemented by members of the band of the First Dragoon Guards. You can imagine, wonderful music and fashion and, and religion, of course. Now, even on ordinary days, the tone of Catholic religious service was transformed to match the new and ostentatious structures the Catholics were building by the introduction of more elaborate embroidered vestments and altar furnishing, and by the greater use of music and incense. Now, the Diocese of Dublin provided most of the best examples of these new churches, which were among the most expensive and prestigious buildings of their type in Ireland, England, Scotland or Wales. The Dublin Diocese spent more than any other diocese in Ireland. In the 50 Dublin parishes in the period 1800 to 64, that's over a period of 64 years, 41 convents have been built at a cost of £360,000, 119 churches at a cost of more than 630000 10 colleges and seminaries at a cost of nearly 80000 and 15 hospitals at a cost of over 100000 So you see we have a rich heritage of religious buildings in Dublin. However, other dioceses also spent heavily and the Catholics of Ireland spent about 
£5 million on religious buildings and schools from the beginning of the century until 1868. Now the important churches were intended to be built on prominent sites and here I have for you some examples. Pro Cathedral it looks as if it was designed for an open site might have been designed for the principal street in Dublin, Sackville Street, on the site of what is now the, the, the GPO. But I've never found anything written down to assert that, so we can't say for sure. Uh, but it was built nearby on the smaller street, Marlborough Street. Uh, St. Paul's, here, achieves a magnificent prominence on Iron Quay, on the western approaches to the city. And the Catholic Directory noted that St. Paul's was the first Catholic church in several centuries to have a tower and a cupola. And there's St. Audubon's, occupies a prominent site on High Street overlooking the heart of the medieval city. And here we have St. Nicholas of Mara. There's evidence that St. Nicholas of Mara was to be opened up to Francis Street as the centrepiece of a facade to include two presbyteries. And St. Francis's Saviour and St. Andrew's both form part of the street facade. And, you know, we forget how big St. Andrew's is. Together with its two presbyteries, it takes up a considerable portion of Western Row and extends back to Cumberland Street South, where the back of the church and schools dominates the street with an assured architecture. St. Andrew's was to have a tower which was not completed, but if it had been, it would have been visible from Merrion Square. Adam and Eve was originally hidden behind Merchant's Quay and Cook Street, but eventually expanded with the priory to present facades to Merchant's Quay, Cook Street, Skipper's Alley and Wine Tarvin Street, after having subsumed Rosemary Lane. Here's the facade to Merchant's Quay. And Our Lady of Refuge, here in the mainly Protestant suburb of Rathmines, makes an imposing presence on the Rathmines Road, and its dome was visible over a large part of the city and suburbs. And here we have the three patrons of Ireland. was too much for the Irish Times when it was built, and the Irish Times offered the opinion that when built it would depreciate the value of property in the neighbourhood and drive the Protestant occupants from the place. And that Irish Times article uh, is a leading article. It's right up at the top. This is, the most, this is really what was playing on their mind at the time. But it does convey a sense that Protestant sympathy for the Catholic cause was evaporating by the mid-century when the Catholics had obtained their civil rights and were continuing to build on a grand scale and beginning to pay, build on a triumphal manner. However, another view of this matter comes from the parish priest of Rathmines, our friend Dr. William Maurer, who thought that the unfinished state of Our Lady of Refuge, there it is there, in 1878, before the portico had been built, was the subject of grief and shame and a scandal to our non-Catholic townsmen. So now, and I want to bring you back to the sermon of Father John Miley, the one he made in St. Audouin's in August 1841. You remember that he mentioned 
several churches which he called trophies of the glorious sacrifices of the Irish people for their religion and he names 11 churches. All but one of these churches survive and the others survive in various forms. By that I mean they have been altered to a greater or lesser extent since they were built. But we get a glimpse of that as I continue by bringing you on a tour of these churches not in the order in which he mentions them in his sermon but in the order in which they were built. In that way we can observe something of the progress of Catholic church building in Dublin. So if you hold my hand I'll bring you on this little tour. And we'll arrive back here for a glass of wine shortly. <laughs> now the first one is St. Teresa's in Clarendon Street which I've mentioned already and I have a date there 1793. Now I've already mentioned this church and it's the oldest church mentioned by Father Miley. The foundation stone was laid in the year that an act for the relief of its majesty's popish or Roman Catholic subject subject of Ireland. Now this, this relief act of 1793 really is the important one as far as building is concerned because after that relief act of 1793 the Catholics could really build what they liked where they liked there were no restrictions now the other emancipation act of 1829 added more things to it but even that provided for the suppression of the religious orders particularly the Jesuits so it wasn't a complete emancipation so this is the important church now I won't really say much about it we did see it at the first one and we saw that it was buried in here with canted ends at each side but it has been extended here we have a south extension in 1865 and west transept and a facade to Clarendon Street in 1876 and it's reached all the way there to Johnson's Court so the original entrance to it was through a laneway from Wicklow Street so we came along there, that laneway's gone now now incidentally I remember about 20 or 30 years ago seeing a plaque on the wall, I think it was from the entrance from Johnson's Court commemorating the laying of the foundation stone by John Sweetman in 1793 and I can't find it, so if anyone knows where it is just tell me afterwards now we move on to the next church, Saints Michael and John in Blind Key and here we are at 1811 and we can be thankful to Dr. Michael Blake for this he was made parish priest of St. Michael's in 1810 and he soon set about looking for a site for the new church he found the site where the Theatre Royal Smock Alley once stood and he chose as his architect John Taylor who built for him as you can see it there, it's a gothic hall incorporating the remains of the theatre and the church was opened in 1815 and shortly after if we are to believe Nicholas Donnelly the fearless Dr Blake set up a bell which he used to call the faithful to mass and to ring the Angelus and Alderman Carleton instituted proceedings in the king's bench against the offending parish priest when Carleton heard that Daniel O'Connell was to defend the action he quietly dropped the matter <laughs> <laughs> and one of the interesting things I think about this is in the funding of all these churches most of the building work for this church was provided voluntarily by Dublin Trades 
here it is on the Ordnance Survey map. You can also see the plaster ceiling is drawn in on the map. And I also think that it's an indication that these buildings were recognised as public buildings because the floor plans of these Catholic chapels, they were called chapels at the time because they didn't belong to the established religion, but we call them churches, I think. The floor plans were drawn in fully. So I think it's an indication of the recognition that Catholics were receiving. Now contemporary with this is St. Mickens on North Ann Street. There's the facade to North Ann Street. This is the oldest the oldest Catholic church in Dublin, still in use for its original purpose. In 1891 to 1902, it was enlarged with side chapels, extending the sanctuary, tower, and the main entrance was changed to Halston Street. But here we see the main entrance from North Ann Street. There's the interior. It's about the same size as uh, St. Michael and John's, about 14 or 15 metres wide by about 35 metres long. It's got a plastered ceiling, vaulted plastered ceiling, with lovely pendants on it, and there are five windows on either side. still has a large balcony. Now we go on to the pro-cathedral. And the idea of building an important city Catholic church in the Archbishop's Parish of St. Mary's became realisable after the Relief Act of 1793. And in 1803, a printed appeal was made to the public for funds. And in this appeal it stated that this church would be adapted to the increased population of this great city and not unworthy of the opulence with which God has blessed its inhabitants. An architectural competition for the new Metropolitan Chapel, as it was called then, was announced in 1814 and the committee wanted a classical building. The winning design was clearly derived from French models and was sent from Paris, but we do not know who the architect was. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about the Pro Cathedral, but I just want to point out one thing, and that's its similarity between it and St. Saint Philip de Rule in Paris, which was designed by Jean-Francois Chalgrin, in 1764 and built in 1772 to 84. So what I have here on the slide is the facade of St. Philip de Rue and the plan of St. Philip de Rue. Now it's just worth noting that the Archbishop of Dublin, Dr. John Troy, was chairman of the building committee responsible for the decision that the new church should be a classical design and it's also worth noting that he spent a week in Paris in 1777 on a journey from Rome to Ireland and St. Philip de Rule was under construction at the time and he probably saw it. Now if you just bear with me I'll just show you my great discoveries. These are three plans. Here on the right we have the plan of St. Philip de Rule as it was originally built and there's St. Philip de Rule as it was extended later on and there's the Pro Cathedral in grey. And what I've done there is I have superimposed one plan over the other. So we see the dotted red line superimposed over the plan of the Pro Cathedral. And what you see there is most remarkable, I think. The width and length of both interiors are almost the same, 
the ratio of width of nave to width of aisle is the same in both churches and the spacing of the columns is the same. In the original design for St. Philip de Rule, the columns continued in front of the apse uh, where the choir stalls were placed. In 1846, the apse was placed further back to the designs of Hippolyte Goda to form an ambulatory behind the columns. This means that the apsidal arrangements in the pro-cathedral was not copied from St. Philip de Rule. Could it be that the reordering of St. Philip de Rule in 1846 was based on the example of the pro-cathedral? If the design for the pro-cathedral came from Paris, then the design was known in Paris. The result of the alteration is to make the spatial volumes in both churches similar. And the sense of space is similar in both churches because they have a similar plan, the same proportions, the same column spacing, and both have barrel vaults. But one thing that does make a difference is the columns. So these are Doric columns here in the Pro-Cathedral, and here we have Ionic columns in St. Philip de Rule. And also the lighting is different. The lighting of St. Philip de Rule is from windows in the aisles, and also from two windows which penetrate the vault. That was intended also for the Pro-Cathedral, but they altered the design and placed dome here. So, when the Pro-Cathedral was built, the spirit of French architecture was brought to Dublin. To enter the Pro-Cathedral is to enter, in imagination, one of the French Basilican planned churches of the late 18th century. Although when we come to the outside, the portico conveys more the sense of international neoclassicism from the early 19th century. So, the interior of the Pro-Cathedral is French, but the exterior would not look out of place in any city touched by neoclassicism. In the 18th and early 19th century, architectural ideas were transmitted quickly by publication and by the movement of architects. And Dublin by no means lagged behind any part of Europe. Just to note too that the use of Greek detailing in the Pro-Cathedral was perfectly in tune with contemporary architectural developments on the continent and in Britain. So now we move on to our next church, mentioned by Father Miley, and we're at 1825 now, and this is Our Lady of Mount Carmel. He mentioned two Carmelite churches, so this is one of them. And George Papworth was the architect of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which he built for the prior of the Carmelite order, the very Reverend John Spratt. First stone was laid in October 1825 by the Archbishop of Dublin, Dr. Daniel Murray and solemnly consecrated by him on the 11th of November 1827. Now I like seeing what contemporary descriptions were so I have one from the Catholic Penny magazine from 1834. It says the interior presents a beautiful architectural view. The right side of the church from which the light is emitted is pierced by windows and the left is ornamented by corresponding niches filled with statues of eminent saints. The ceiling is coved and divided into rectangular compartments. The interior, just completed, will be peculiarly neat. The whole expense is about £4,000 and proves how much can be done with small means 
when taste and judgment are combined. Notice that the rich people are near the altar on seats and the poor people are at the back of the church kneeling down on the cold floor. That was common in the Catholic churches. The only part that remains now is this part here and the cold ceiling remains too and I think it has been altered. In 1844 the church was extended to the north and part of Papworth's original church was incorporated into the south aisle and we can see it there on the plan. There is the original church. So this is the extent of it in 1864 but since then it has extended further. And I think this engraving is quite accurate because if you do compare it with what remains it seems to be accurate. Now we're on to St. Nicholas of Marla in Francis Street and we're at 1829 now. And I know this church is a favourite of many people and we should thank the parish priest Matthew Flanagan for it. Now Father Flanagan was appointed parish priest of St. Nicholas of Marla in 1827. He soon directed his efforts to building an addition to the church at the east, a modest enough project which ended up with the building of a whole new church. These things happen. My father Flanagan was one of the new generation of priests educated in Maynooth and he served as parish priest of St. Nicholas until his death in 1856. In one of the parish registers, Father Flanagan wrote in December 1834, he wrote, The building was commenced January 1829 and now to be completed interiorly before January next will cost interiorly complete £8,400 of which the poor and labouring classes collected by a society of the undernamed charitable individuals during the space of five years with unremitting and indefatigable zeal amounted to £2,959 five shillings and five pence. The remainder was supplied by the donations of the richer parishioners of the parish, of the clergy and of certain charitable individuals residing out of the parish. Now that was a record of part of a parchment which was enclosed in a bottle and placed under the high altar on the 1st of December 1834. And it contains as well as a short account of the new church, a short history of the parish, information on the clergy and the work of the parish and an account of the state of ecclesiastical affairs and politics in Ireland. Now according to the author of A Short History of Some Dublin Parishes, Nicholas Donnelly, he said the principal lines of the design were by the architect John Leeson but Father Flanagan was responsible for the refinement of all the details which he says was evidence of a cultivated taste this may well have been the case. You see, in this copy of the parchment placed under the high altar, the statement that the parish priest was the builder of the church is corrected to read under whom the church was built. Now, who knows? But it just sounds to me likely that the correction was made on the authority of the parish priest, who from a feeling of modesty was willing to take all the credit for the work. <laughs> The design for the exterior was criticised in the Dublin Penny Journal for what is described as the incongruous 
association of a Gothic spire rising out of a Greek portico, and the writer, confident of his own superior judgment in matters of taste, proffered the advice that, as it is not too late, we indulge a hope that this error may be corrected. I say the spire which offended the Dublin Penny Journal cannot be called Gothic. The whole arrangement of portico, base, tower and pyramidal spire has a sober classical appearance and is a satisfactory solution to the problem of uniting spire and portico. You can see there that the drawing suggests a large open space in front of the church and presbyteries, which would have involved the demolition of some houses fronting Francis Street and no houses were demolished as far as I know and only one presbytery was built. That, that pediment was there and the spire was never built but the pediment was replaced with the copper dome. I was mentioning earlier about the segregation of classes of people in the churches and we have a lovely example in St. Nicholas of Mara, uh, the opulent members of society approached the church through here and seated themselves near the altar. There's a little gate there which still has a lock on it. It's interesting. It's great that they haven't altered that. So these rails are still in position. The focal point of the church, the high altar, has retained its original fittings. The parish priest bought, bought the altar at Rome and the statuary at Florence. He used his contact in Rome, the rector of the Irish College, Dr. Paul Cullen, to help him buy the sculpture he wanted for his church. And he travelled to Florence in 1833 and took an apartment for one month to look for sculpture and to study Italian. Shortly after arriving in Florence, he wrote a gushing letter to Cullen describing his journey and praising the beauty of Florence, its clean and well-dressed inhabitants, and its delightful cafes and restaurants. Now we can only think that this must have been a contrast to what he was used to in Dublin. He was writing about the coach trip and some American passengers too that were causing a nuisance. It was great stuff to read. Here's a little of what he wrote. The city is all alive, the streets wide, admirably paved, I may say flagged and perfectly clean. The air is good and the view of the vicinity which I only yet had at a distance, exceedingly cheering and enlivening. So he enjoyed himself there. Now, Father Flanagan had already commissioned the Roman artist Giuseppe Leonardi to build the altar for St. Nicholas of Mara, but he failed to find anyone in Rome willing to carve the two statues of angels he wanted for the price he was willing to offer. But he did eventually find in Florence sculptor, turned out to be very good, Francesco Pozzi, to carve the two angels. And there's lots of correspondence about that, about the exact sizes of it. And then when he leaves Florence, he's worried that the sculptor will stop work on his project because he isn't there to egg him on and so on. But they did eventually arrive. But there's more things in this church, more delights. There's a plaster relief of the Last Supper there. And over this altar, the Marriage of the Virgin by John Smith. And there's a Pieta by John Hogan. So it's a really lovely stuff. The Freeman's Journal described this interior as it was at the consecration of the church on the 15th of February 1832. The pilasters, the pilasters 
over the altar are of the Ionic order and have a very fine effect. The stucco too over the sanctuary, the only part as yet sealed, is beautiful. The building is altogether light, elegant and commodious and when completed will reflect great credit upon the architect who planned and the independent and liberal parishioners who erected so noble a temple to the living God and surely the labours of the reverend gentleman under whose auspices so vast a work was undertaken can never be forgotten. Now almost ten years later on the 8th of November 1842 the church was solemnly dedicated although unfinished and the Catholic directory expressed the hope that Father Flanagan could complete this sacred structure which is an honour to his taste and judgment. Some more photographs of the interior. This ceiling is remarkable. All these panels have symbols of religion like keys and the cock crowing distributed all over the church. And then at the crossing here we have four fathers of the church and we have the twelve apostles all around here. So it's a really lovely piece of work. And I, I love that church. And I remember when I was making the plan of it, I was left alone inside and the church was locked and there was a thunderstorm outside. One of these things that stick in your memory. The joys of research and working. And there's Francesco Pozzi's beautiful angels, beautiful marble angels. So we're lucky to have these, I think. So now, we'll move on to our next church. Also 1829, St. Francis the Saviour in Gardner Street, Upper. And building work started on this church in 1829 and was open for use on the 3rd of May 1832 and was dedicated on the 12th of February 1835. Church was built. And the new church was described by the Reverend Patrick Marr, S.J., as a beautiful, uniform and commodious temple. And the Catholic Penny magazine described it as one of the most perfect, convenient and classical edifices of our city, combining at once elegance of design with utility of arrangement and affording the only specimen in Dublin where native granite has been exclusively applied in the construction of an extensive portico and only a native granite are in big letters. Now it's remarkable how quickly the church was built in one campaign and made ready for use compared with other contemporary churches. Well the building went on for years and years and the portico was eventually built after 20 years, maybe even later. I'm just thinking now of St. Audubon's 1840s and it wasn't until the 1890s that the portico was built. And I wondered about this. I thought, well, maybe the Jesuits just like to make a big display as quickly as possible, and this might be true. But there seems to have been pressure on the Jesuits to finish the portico to avoid paying additional rent. So let's have a look inside. Here we have a photograph taken in the early 1900s, and here's an engraving published in 1832 than the Catholic Penny magazine. And we can see originally the sanctuary ended in a rectangular space, a very shallow sanctuary. Less than five years after the church was finished, 
plans for extending the apps were being discussed. And it is possible that the extended apps was part of the original architectural concept, but was set aside for lack of funds, we don't know. On the other hand, it is possible that during the rector's stay in Rome, Father Esmond's stay at the Jesu, which is the mother church of the Jesuit order, he stayed there from 1839 to 1844, and it's possible that the idea of extending the church fixed itself in his mind while he was there. But whatever the reason, in early 1842, we find that Father Esmond, writing from the Jesu, discussing designs for extending the apse and for other work as well, with Father Robert Haley, who was resident in Gardner Street. So Father Esmond's idea was to extend the apse and to finish it with the semicircle, like in the Jesu. Uh, without the enlarged sanctuary, the plan of St. Francis Xavier was, according to Father Esmond, meagre and stunted to Romanize. He required Romanize there. He saw things differently. And he says everyone he consulted in Rome thought that the general effect and proportions of the church would be improved by the proposed enlargement of the sanctuary. Now, the building of the apse in 1851 and the placing of this high altar within it brought the spirit of the Jesu to Dublin. So there are some features of the Jesu which are employed in St. Francis' Xavier. The side chapels, I have a plan in which we will see the side chapels later. And very short transepts. Incidentally, the, the rich people entered through the side chapels and found themselves up near the altar. That's how they entered the building. There are differences too. The Jesu has a barrel vaulted ceiling and a dome at the crossing, but here it's all flat ceilings. Beautiful church, St. Francis Xavier, and a beautiful altar. We're a long way from the 18th century chapels with the great big galleries and people squashed in tightly. Here we have just a small gallery for the choir and organ. And what a beautiful organ that extends from one side to the other. There's a close resemblance in the proportions on plan of St. Francis Xavier to the Jesu. And to some extent this explains why the architectural experience conveyed by the interiors are comparable. What I have here is a slide to show you the similarities. On this plan here we have a plan of the Jesu. The details of the plan of the Francis Xavier don't really matter too much, but they are the black line running around there. What I've done there is I've shrunk the plan of the Jesu down to about the same size as the plan of St. Francis Xavier. And in the shrunken version, uh, we have the broken red line. And you see how closely it corresponds with the proportions of St. Francis Xavier. These are the side chapels I was talking about, and there's the side chapel in St. Francis Xavier. There are hundreds of Jesuit churches all over the world, and many of them are linked to a greater or lesser degree to the mother church, the Jesu. Although the plan of St. Francis Xavier is based on that of the Jesu, its facade is derived from the French temple frontage models of the late 18th and 19th century and it bears a particular 
resemblance to the facade of Notre Dame de Lorette by Louis Hippolyte Labam, which had been erected a few years. So I'll just go back to that slide to show it to you. So here we have Italian and French influences coming to bear on this church. I want to bring you now to a church which is just about five minutes walk from here, St. Andrews in Western Row. And this was started in 1832. The first church that Father Miley mentioned in his sermon is St. Andrews. And it is also the first church that probably sprung to his mind because only a few months before his sermon this church was solemnly consecrated on 29th of January 1841. Now this must have been a really wonderful affair. The ceremony started at 8am after the vigil of the preceding evening and continued until 3pm. That's seven hours plus. You had to be in early to get a good place. And the sermon was preached by Dr. Wiseman. Freeman sent journalists there to report on it. And the Freeman's journal had this to say. Now I don't know if the reporter spent all seven hours at the ceremony. But he said, in Rome itself, the August Rite could not have been performed in a more complete form and in the brilliance and becoming splendour with which it was attended by so many of the great continental churches that could not have eclipsed yesterday's ceremony. But let's just go back to the 30th of April, 1832, when the administrator, that's the parish priest, uh, Dr. Blake, whom we have already met at St. Michael and John, he laid the first stone. He had his name, his initials put on the stone, by the way. And this ceremony was attended with a great deal of pomp. A large platform was provided for those attending. The Freeman's Journal observed that this platform was crowded with elegantly dressed females. And he goes on to say, the Russian horn band was in attendance on the occasion and added considerably to the effect of the ceremony by their wild and characteristic music. You just imagine the noise and the music. And God Save the King was performed at the commencement and conclusion of the ceremony. The work proceeded quickly, and by the time the walls were up to roof level, over £6,000 had been collected for the building fund. And on 2nd of January 1834, just about two years later, uh, the church was blessed and open for worship. And the old chapel on Townsend Street was finally abandoned. They did actually start building a chapel on Townsend Street, but then they changed their mind. They'd actually got it up to wall plate level. And they decided on this more prominent site here. And in 1836, the large Baroque statue of St. Andrew with his cross <coughs> was erected. This was made by John Smith. We've already met him in St. Nicholas of Mara. It impressed the editor of the Catholic Directory who wrote that it was the first piece of colossal statuary erected on any Catholic church in Ireland since the Reformation. Now, it just might be worth noting that this was designed by James Bulger who was appointed architect after the decision to abandon the party built church in Townsend Street was taken. 
The architect of the Townsend Street Church was John Leeson, who designed St Nicholas of Mara. And I would have loved to have seen more work by John Leeson. He didn't like the idea of his church being abandoned. And he embroiled himself in a public row with Dr Blake and half the parish. They were firing letters at each other through the Freeman's journey. And it was a terrible row, really. Dr Blake mentioned something about dry rot or woodworm. And then John Leeson got up on his high horse and said, What do you know about dry rot? You're only a priest. You're only a parish priest. You know nothing about dry rot. And he didn't like that. And John Leeson never designed a Catholic church again, as far as I know. Which is a pity, really. (laughs) So having good social skills is important as having good architectural skills. So I'll just show you a few pictures of the church. Another splendid church. I think characteristic of Bulger is these little lunette windows at high level and the way he articulates the wall. We'll see that in Adam and Eve now presently. Now we haven't got apostles there but we've got the four evangelists at the corner and maybe they're doctors of the church. You can see some similarity between that and St. Nicholas of Mara so you wonder really what was going on. You can just imagine James Bulger being handed John Leeson's design and say, well look, will you adapt that? Now this is the church in the 1930s and we can see here the rails for segregating the congregation and the poor people here had some seating but not all that much there was plenty of room for standing as you can see there as well but the opulent members of society had these good seats here now we're going to stay with James Bulger and go on to Adam and Eve in Merchant's Quay and we're in 1834 now now when Father Miley preached his sermon in St. Audubon's in 1841 Adam and Eve was almost finished and the 15th of November 1842 was de- dedicated. Now, its building was the responsibility of the Franciscans, and its realisation represents their successful establishment after a difficult history in Ireland after the dissolution of the monasteries in the late 1530s, when most of the monks left the country or were driven underground. Sometime after 1615, the Franciscans returned to Dublin and opened a chapel in a lane of Cook Street near a public house called Adam and Eve and the name endured as the popular name for the present church of St. Francis of Assisi Merchant Quay and then in 1757 the friars purchased a house in Merchant Quay which was fitted up as a priory and then later they acquired the site of the old Rosemary Lane Chapel of St. Michael which lay up against their own and it seems that the high altar of St. Michael's was exactly where the altar of the new church was to be. Now, this, the foundation stone was laid for the new church on 16th of April 1834 by the Reverend Henry Hughes, the guardian of the Franciscan Priory. And it was considered important that the location of the new church was on the same venerable spot as the old church. Not much of James Bulger's original design remains. Here's the original church here. Parts of the transept remained. And you can see the same detailing there as we saw in St. Andrew's with the lunette windows and the articulation on the wall. 
I'll just show you here that followed the old idea of big balconies. Originally it was a tea plan and there were three balconies, one in each transept and one in the nave. And this photograph was taken from uh, the balcony in the nave. You can see the way the congregation were segregated there as well. And eventually they got their facade at Merchant's Quay. This is designed by Patrick Byrne and built in the 1860s. Now, there's not much to say about this because there's nothing to see. It's gone. This is the Dominican Church in Denmark Street, which is really somewhere in the middle of the Islac shopping centre. But a little lane that you could approach it by is still there. It's called Chapel Lane, although the name is not on the wall, but it's between Pennies and the Islac Centre. And it was converted for a school when the Dominicans built their new church in the 1860s in Dominic Street. Now this is St. Paul's in Arran Quay, 1835, mentioned by Miley as well. It makes a strong visual assertion on the Liffey Keys, the first prominent building that you can see from the rest western approaches to the city. Now the Catholic Penny magazine published an engraving of the facade and a description of the church in its edition of 10th of January 1835. And the writer thought that the new church was likely to become one of the principal architectural ornaments of our city. And you notice here too that the portico of St. Paul's is built of granite, following the example of St. Francis the Saviour, which really broke that tradition of using a combination of Portland stone and granite, which was first initiated in Dublin in the early 18th century with the Parliament building. And this use of granite in the portico was a source of satisfaction for the editor of the Catholic Directory, who noted that until recently it was considered indispensable to send to the sister country for large blocks of stone required for the columns and architraves of a large portico. Well, it took a while to build the portico, but it was eventually finished and paid for in 1842. A considerable portion of money went into creating a big facade because the accommodation is quite modest really. I'm really impressed with the stone carving of this church and these ionic columns here which are copied from the Erecteum on the Acropolis in Athens. It's carved with great fine detail but they're very hard on yielding stone so that must have taken ages to do. <coughs> So it was built pretty much as designed. Uh, one thing that was omitted though was the fluting in the columns and Patrick Byrne was well aware that well that's the correct way to make the columns of course but the sunlight of the south facing building would, would be caught in the fine details of the stone there and would show to great effect. There were to be three windows here but now they're lit from above and the doors were of equal height too and that was changed. In many respects, the interior of St. Paul's owes something to Our Lady of Mount Carmel, the Carmelite Church, which we already looked at. There's a lot in common with these two churches. The shallow, shallow barrel vault, the Greek detailing from the Erecteum, and the articulation of the external walls. Even the site restrictions are similar, and both churches had to have very narrow naves. In fact, the site restrictions are so much in this church that the front facade is aligned with Arran Quay and the side of the building is aligned with Lincoln Lane 
and it's not quite rectangular because it's like twisting up the axis there but you don't notice that and I really think that Patrick Byrne was well versed in classical architecture and he knew that the ancient Romans would do that sort of thing with city gates and it just changed the alignment uh, one of the things about this church was it had wonderful bells in it called joy bells and they were popular with the citizens of Dublin and according to Nicholas Donnelly they came in their thousands to hear them rung for the first time the bells were rung every Sunday on special days according to the classic directory by select and judicious persons chosen and adapted for that important purpose they were made by James Sheridan of the Eagle Foundry Church Street Sheridan was very, very pleased with his work and he described the bells on the great delight and satisfaction of the assembled thousands who came to witness the reviving sounds of Irish Christianity. And he praised the parish priest, Dr. Yore, whom he said, whose patrician love for Ireland induced him to get them here at his bells, notwithstanding the allurements held out by the London bellmakers. I often thought it would have been a great millennium project to restore these bells and ring them and I would love to have the sounds of them for you now I'll just finish with one church not mentioned by Father Miles and that's St. Audubon's and of course he couldn't have mentioned it because it had not been built the sermon was preached on the 24th of August 1841 in the old St. Audubon's and was intended to help raise funds for the new St. Audubon's whose foundation stone had been laid on the 2nd of July that year. Two years later, Catholic Directory announced that the church already raises its lofty head over the city. And it does look impressive because the ground slopes back there. And in fact, there's a double basement underneath it, so it is really lofty. St. Audubon's was designed by Patrick Byrne using a cruciform plan. And you can see there's one entrance under the portico through a round-headed doorway. And then we have a little blind doorway on either side and niches above. And this is repeated in the interior. Now, it was intended to have statues of the apostles and all this. But here we have the interior. And much of its original neoclassical chasteness remains. It really is a beautiful church. And one thing I just point out to you too, that here he has the lighting in the vault itself. This was a device intended for the pro-cathedral. So here we have a little bit of the ideas of the pro-cathedral coming here to St. Audubon's. And the whole interior is articulated with these Corinthian pilasters. No great big balcony like the balcony he had to put in St. Paul's, but now the balcony is almost like a piece of furniture detached from the walls. I just want to say here that St. Audubon's uh, owes something also, I think, to St. Francis Saviour. And Patrick Byrne and John B. Keane, John B. Keane is the architect of St. Francis Saviour, they, they knew each other. They sat together on the council of the Royal Institute of the Architects of Ireland. And in my imagination, I just imagine the parish priest saying to Patrick Byrne, well, you know, I want something like St. Francis Xavier, except a little bit bigger. And this is really a possibility because I've noticed that the proportions are quite similar. There's St. Audubon's there on the left, and there's St. Francis Xavier on the right. And 
So I see similarities in the proportions there. Shallow transept, shallow sanctuary as it was when it was built first, but just enlarged a little bit bigger. So I think it owes something to, to Rome. It owes something to Paris as well, to the Pro Cathedral with the lighting. And if we sit it amongst some churches from the same era or before from Paris, it doesn't look out of place. I think if you came across a church like this in, in Paris, you wouldn't feel that there was anything wrong. So there it is, um, sitting amongst the churches in Paris. Lord Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, we've reached the end of our tour of the churches mentioned with such pride by Dr. John Miley 169 years ago, and which I hope you agree with me, I know you do. They deserve our love and attention as a valuable part of our architectural and cultural heritage. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.